0: Welcome to Then and Now, brought to you by the UCLA Luskin Center for History and Policy. We are dedicated to studying change in order to make change, linking knowledge of the past to the quest for a better future. Every other week, we interview thought leaders, historians, researchers, and policymakers about what happened then and what that means for us now.
1: I'm David Myers, your host of Then and Now. Today's episode is a bit more intricate than usual. It consists of three parts, which together provide a clear picture of the latest round of hostilities in the ongoing conflict between Israelis and Palestinians. This last wave featured yet another cycle of fighting between Israel and Hamas, the Palestinian militant group in Gaza, but also a new phenomenon, violence between Jews and Arabs, or rather violence perpetrated by Jewish and Arab gangs, on members of the other group within the Green Line. Where does this violence come from? And how did it trigger the wider battle between israel and hamas did benjamin netanyahu and hamas both benefit from this outbreak of violence did the violence manifest a new form of solidarity that links palestinians in israel the west bank and gaza and what is the fate of the long regnant model of the two-state solution these are some of the questions that we will be discussing with three experts on middle eastern history and affairs hussein ibish James Gelvin, and Lara Friedman. They reflect on different aspects of the recent conflict while also sharing a sense of shrinking horizons for peace in Israel-Palestine in the short and intermediate term. Let's begin with our conversation on Israel-Gaza with Hussein Ibish. I'm pleased to welcome to this first section of a special three-part episode of Then and Now Dr. Hussein Ibish, Hussein is a senior resident scholar at the Arab Gulf States Institute in Washington. He's also a weekly columnist for Bloomberg and The Nation and a regular contributor to many other U.S. and Middle Eastern publications. Today, we will be talking about one key dimension in the latest cycle of violence between Israelis and Palestinians, the Gaza front, pitting Israel against Hamas and other Islamist forces. So let's jump right into this topic. Hussein, first of all, welcome to Then and Now. Thank you good to be with you. Great to have you. So how do you understand the roots of the hostility between Israel and Hamas, especially given that Israel had a hand in the very rise of the organization in 1988, which it saw as an Islamist alternative to the more secular nationalist Fatah of the PLO?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's worth, first of all, clarifying exactly what Israel did and didn't do to facilitate the, the rise of Hamas, because you will you will find people who will say, you know, Israel um, contributed to Hamas or something like that. And that's false uh, during the uh, first Intifada, which began in uh, 1987, uh, which was largely a, a kind of spontaneous grassroots, um, popular uprising against Israeli rule in uh, the West Bank, Jerusalem, and Gaza, um, which was n- n- not under the control of the PLO or Fatah, or any of the major parties, but just kind of happening. The PLO at that point was in Tunis, uh, very far away, and kind of irrelevant, and not really very present in the occupied territories. Um, you know, it, it, it it this conflict regal it galvanized the PLO and it, it threatened to bring the PLO into uh, Palestine again, really for the first time since it, it was formed in the 60s, to get it inside the de facto greater Israel, inside the territories run by Israel, historical Palestine. And uh, I think as just as the PLO worked and Fatah worked very hard to get back into uh the territories and and eventually succeeded on the back of organizing the the uh previously loosely organized intifada uprising um Hamas the Muslim Brotherhood which is very powerful in Gaza uh, at the time uh for various reasons had uh, wanted to similarly propel its own fortunes by creating a political overtly political and ultimately a paramilitary also organization, which became Hamas. What, what happened was the Israelis facilitated um, the rise of Hamas by giving the Muslim Brotherhood leaders space to do it. They, they let them do various things, including meeting, move money around uh, and variously organize in ways that other Palestinians would have probably been arrested for at the time. And they, they, they gave them this, the breathing space to form and encouraged it in a, in a largely sort of an indirect way, but, but a very meaningful way, uh, in hopes of splitting the Palestinian movement between the secular nationalists in the PLO parties, uh, especially Fatah, and some Islamist alternative. And uh, basically that's gone extremely well. Having said all of that, uh, while it's true that uh, Israel and Hamas kind of rely on each other as polar opposites, and they serve each other's interests very well as, you know, ideal antagonists. And I think we'll have plenty of, of space to explain that in, in a little more detail. I, I think it's worth saying that they are on a, ultimately certainly on a collision course. I mean, <laughs> there's no doubt about it. Where they find each other useful is in outbidding each other. I mean, talking here about the Israeli right, which which we sometimes think of as Israel because it's dominated the governments for a long time, but it really is the right wing in Israel. And Hamas, which is the religious ultra-right among Palestinians, uh, by behaving in an extreme way and having maximalist policies and um, uh, adhering to um, an ideology of basically violent confrontation, uh, at at least at times, and at least in theory, managed to mutually reinforce a, a violent relationship between the peoples that serves both of their interests.
1: Right. We're going to talk about that in greater detail, but I I do want to move ahead to a moment which would seem to defy that pattern of um, violent confrontation serving both interests, um, which I'd like you to talk about, which is the year 2005 when Israeli Prime Minister Ariel Sharon embarked on a disengagement of Israeli settlers from the Gaza Strip. Um, And how did that play into the dynamics that had been created
2: already 17 years earlier? Well, I don't think it did defy it. I think it redefined it because it's not as if Israel just withdrew from Gaza. It did pull settlements from northern Gaza, and that allowed the the Israeli military. And in fact, the whole point of it was to allow the Israeli military to not police Gaza, but to pull to the periphery and to control ingress and egress to Gaza with, with the exception of one crossing. Um, between Gaza and Egypt, uh, which cannot handle goods. It's it's purely a, a people crossing, which is a you know, technical de- detail, which is important uh, in the long run. Um, and uh, it, it was pursuant to a longstanding opinion by the Israeli military, of which Sharon was formerly a part and was very close to, that it was not worth it, that uh, Gaza was from an ideological, religious point of view, not an absolutely indispensable part of Eres Israel. And more importantly, that from a strategic national interest point of view, this was way past diminishing returns. And it would be much better not to have these settlers in northern Gaza and to protect them on the ground. It would be much better to pull back to the periphery. And that would be a far less uh, onerous, heavy lift much less risky, much less um, problematic, much more manageable for the Israeli military. So that what happened was against the vociferous condemnation of a lot of the settler movement and and uh, sort of you know uh, real even practical opposition, but not not violent opposition, but but obstructionism of the most. You know, sort of advanced variety, sort of lying on the ground and not moving, kind of stuff, and real angry protests. The Israeli government did uh, pull the settlers out of northern Gaza and basically restructured the relation, the the nature of the occupation, which continued in Gaza to being one uh, of controlling the periphery, controlling the airspace, the electromagnetic spectrum, the crossings, the coastline, and basically leaving Gaza to fester in its own juices while being totally surrounded. That's a different than uh, the way in which the West Bank tends to be ruled. And um, that's effectively what happened there.
1: And what explains, um, in your view, um, the almost um, regular cycles of conflict between Israel and Hamas? So uh, 2012, 2008, 2009, 2012, 2014. Um, there was something of a respite, seven-year respite. There's was a small one in
2: 2019, uh, yeah. not big. Yeah.
1: So what? 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 What's the interest of the two sides uh, to have this repeated um, uh, military engagement? Yeah,
2: I mean, I, I think it it uh, first of all helps to perpetuate the status quo, uh, both in Gaza and in the West Bank. Uh, in a way that benefits both of the sides. And there's, you know, people, many people are familiar with The Godfather. There's a famous scene where Capo Regime, Peter Clemenza, says to young Michael about a war between the crime families. This has got to happen every five years, ten years. Helps to clear the bad blood. You got to do it. And and I I mean, honestly, it's a bit like that. It's got to happen every five or ten years. Particularly... um, Israeli officials have been explicit in the past about their welcoming of of a, of a cycle. They call it they had a name for it. They call it mowing the grass, meaning that when during the uh, lulls in between or during the periods between these spasms, Hamas builds cap- cap- military capability, uh, tunnels, um, military uh you know leadership, military commanding control, missiles, rockets, various different capabilities. Then after four to six years, at some point, Israel uh, intervenes and kills some of those people and blows up a lot of that stuff. And Hamas uses its ordinance, right? Fires it at Israel, and so they get, get pushed back to a point where they have a lot less when the dust settles than they did before. And the Israeli military can say, "Well, okay, we've degraded the capability of this entity for now." Obviously, though experience doesn't go away and and groups like this tend to get stronger over time and i do think we see that to some extent with hamas but but because of the nature of the occupation of gaza it's limited Um, but i think ultimately uh hamas too benefits from this situation right it helps israel manage gaza but it, it also uh helps hamas um not only justify their control of gaza but also to it's, it's key to their competitive advantage, so to speak, or their competitive political strategy towards Fatah and the PLO. Hamas's main agenda, uh, I think it, it's fair to say every political party's main agenda uh, is to acquire and maintain political power within its own sphere. Everybody else comes second. If you don't control your people and your area and whatnot, uh, you can't address others. It's not to say people are nice. It's just to say that's how politics works. So Hamas's main agenda is to take over the Palestinian National Movement, take over the PLO, and uh, which is the diplomatic arm of the Palestinian people, and... Uh, take over all of the self-rule areas, particularly area A in the West Bank, the, you know, the cities, little Palestinian cities. So uh, to do that, Hamas has a quandary because their main argument against the PLO is is a religious one, is right wing um, social conservatism. That's the biggest Practical difference between the two: Hamas represents the Muslim Brotherhood view of state and society. A hijab, a women head covering. Are you guys married? Are you related to that woman or not? Uh, you know, don't smoke, don't drink, don't. You know, it's a social, you know, reactionary social agenda. Is the main difference, unless you add outbidding the PLO and Fatah on Israel and on violence to that mix. Once that happens. Right. then uh, they can claim not just to be a reactionary social organization, a conservative right-wing religious group. They can claim to be the national champions, the champions of the faith, the chem- and, and wrap themselves in the flag and the Quran and, and get beyond the probably 28%, 30% ceiling that religious conservatism seems to have among Palestinians. So having done that, um then uh violence becomes a uh a political weapon uh, for their internal power so
1: if, if we just pick up on that so on one hand israel has the periodic kind of regular interest in mowing the grass yes and hamas has the interest in burnishing its reputation as the defender of the palestinian people and yes. in this most recent sense indeed as the defender of the holy city of jerusalem yeah um what if anything was new in this conflict,
2: uh, before I get to that, I'd like to add another layer of Israel's interests because I think there is something more. Uh, the Hamas is—it's it, imperative to maintain Hamas's control of Gaza for two reasons. For Israel, I mean, you—you—it is obvious that Israel does not seek to overthrow Hamas in Gaza and reimpose its rule, or just smash them up and leave. Partly because of fear of the alternative, but also partly because these wars uh, between Israel and Gaza, by strengthening Hamas politically, but only to a point, uh, really facilitates the, the settlement project in occupied uh, West Bank and East Jerusalem. It's essential because it lets that project go forward without a peace process, without a viable um, partner. You can say, okay, the other side is split. And one of its two entities is a violent terrorist organization that seeks our destruction. We can't negotiate. There's nothing to talk about it. And then settlements become a forward defense. Against an implacable terrorist foe. And eventually, the logic of settlement gives way to the logic of annexation. And this is really what I think the main interest of the Israeli right is yeah, in the We regime. need to add
1: one, 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 one more criterion yeah. to the mix, which is, of course, the personal political interests of Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu.
2: Of course. Um,
1: which seem to align perfectly with the timing of this latest conflict.
2: In, in the current instance, it's definitely true. I think there's always a personal interest on the part of politicians who benefit from a dynamic in maintaining it. And that's true for the Hamas leaders and for a lot of Israeli leaders. Uh, the interest of Netanyahu, I mean, it, you could say this sort of saved Mr. Netanyahu's plant-based uh, you know, bacon substitute or whatever you want to say. Uh, it it saved his career and kept him in office, and yep. he was about to go
1: just on the uh, eve on May 10th of agreement between uh, two opposition leaders to form an alternative government. Yeah, uh, the Hamas rockets came uh, came came to Jerusalem, and Netanyahu, of course, could reinvoke yet again the, exactly. the specter of emergency. And,
2: and 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 what's fascinating is that that the, the uh, Bennett Lapid coalition was going to include a palestinian citizen of israel uh for the first time in israel's history an islamist <laughs> irony of ironies <laughs> a guy who comes from the brotherhood movement himself uh, kind of, yeah a guy called Mansour abbas who's uh, you know his he's got a you know uh, he's got about five or six seats in the Knesset that he can call on, and uh, um, and and at least they can agree that homosexuality is a bad thing and stuff like that. Uh, he and and not Netanyahu, but Netanyahu's. I don't religious friends, but anyway, um, the I think the the biggest difference precisely goes to that right. A lot of what we've seen in this conflict is is grimly familiar. Certainly, the aerial bombardments familiar, the unrest in Jerusalem that that uh, produced it, uh, protests and what uh, unrest in the West Bank, all that's familiar. What's not familiar is the widespread. Eruption of communal violence, mob violence, inside Israel itself, and we've historically seen a lot of that in the twenties, thirties, and forties, but not much since then. There, there certainly have been uh, protests uh, among Palestinian citizens of Israel, most notably in October um, 2000, during the beginning of the first Intifada, when in one protest, thirteen. Uh, Palestinians were were shot by the Israeli. Um, I think it was the border police, in a way that surely would not have been done to Jews. At least not so not, not so straightforwardly, not so um, cavalierly. However, um, that was really a confrontation with the state itself, uh, with the with the security forces. It was not communal violence in both ways. There was a violent Jewish response, but it looked very different, and it was it was pretty concentrated. <laughs> In the Galilee, on the Palestinian part, and elsewhere, on the part of the right-wing vigilantes that that's struck back, if you like, and the the point is that there the communal violence we've seen, uh, you know, in 2021, looks and feels really different. It looks and feels much more like the 1920s and the 1930s than than anything since then, and uh, the reasons for it are complicated. But that's the the biggest item in. The biggest item in motion is that, is the Palestinian citizens of Israel. And and you have, on the one hand, you have Abbas pushing to, um, you know, get more involved in the system. And then you've got these confrontations, which are far more alienation.
1: We're going to devote a whole, a whole section of this series to to the intercommunal violence. Um, but I do want to, just two in a certain sense, two currents, two vectors moving in opposite directions that uh, the former Israeli Knesset member, Azmi Bishara, identified 20 or more years ago, increasing Israelization on one one hand of the Israeli-Palestinian citizenry and
2: increasing palestinization
1: on the other. Um, And friction between them is really generative of new political expression.
2: And which way do you go? It's a a competition between impulses. I think um, one thing that's worth mentioning, although you're going to do this in more detail, is that the, the, the push to greater Israelization or, or the greater identification of these um, citizens of Israel, Arab citizens of Israel with the Israeli state and integration in Israeli society is a very real. And uh, it's going forward, but mainly at the personal and familial level, at the communal Uh, Mass level, the alienation is greater than ever because of things like the nation state law and a much more explicit exclusion of non-Jewish communities, even ones that have been loyal to the state, like the Druze, um, you know, from national life, from aspects of national life. It's sort of the Balfour Declaration again. Jews have uh, all the rights plus a national identity in this place, and everybody else has civil and religious rights, but not... Uh, national yeah. self determination.
1: The difference that now Jews are the majority, um, yeah. and and in fact in and, and in fact um, are advancing a majoritarian agenda right. uh, in this period of Israeli history. Correct. Yeah. Um, so, how, in light of all of this, do you assess the current strategic balance? Um, what do you think um, the important takeaways are of this recent uh, bout of violence?
2: Okay. Uh, I mean, I would say that the uh, status quo has been greatly reinforced by the violence, which is the point of the violence. The people who benefit from the status quo, the Israeli right, the settler movement, on the one hand, Hamas, to a lesser extent, um, Palestinian Islamic Jihad, which is kind of a an, an pro-Iranian organization, much smaller, um, all benefit from the status quo in a big way, and this reinforces it and they all benefited politically and they're very pleased with what happened right you can see it in their faces you look at the hamas leaders they're beaming look at netanyahu on tv declaring double extra super secret victory You know that victory is so great we don't even know even hamas doesn't even know how great it is uh, i mean whatever he's talking about right? um you know the point is it's it's they're very pleased and uh in that sense, it's just Groundhog Day. It doesn't really move the ball forward or back. It's just, bad. but there are these forces in motion, right? There are a couple things. First, the Palestinian citizens of Israel, and I think that's reflective of the fact that um, things don't stay the same as the fiction of Oslo of of uh, of the prospects of a two state solution dies, you know, the Israeli state for a long time has behaved as if the Green Line separating um, Israel, it's proper from the occupied territories doesn't exist. And and it doesn't exist, at least for the Israeli state. And above all, for the Israeli settlers, the point has been to have all Jewish Israelis living in one integrated national community, wherever they may be in there, it's Israel. And it, it, it in, in many ways is not different for those who live in settlements than for those who live inside Israel. in, in, uh, in some ways it is different, but legally it's not. Uh, and uh, in, in many other respects, it isn't. Um, I think as time has gone on, the, the willingness of others, Palestinians, Palestinian citizens of Israel, the international community, human rights groups, scholars to, to um, maintain this fiction when the Israeli government doesn't, has sort of um, been exhausted. And people are increasingly saying, look, I mean, you behave as if it isn't there. You don't, your official position is Palestinians can't have a state. They can have a state minus, which is not defined, but obviously it's not a state or wouldn't have a minus attached to it. And uh, you're talking seriously about annexing 30% more of the West Bank. Uh, You know, this, so obviously uh, this is one integrated Um, greater Israeli entity of some kind, in which you have about seven or eight different categories of legal status for Palestinians, everything from the uh, second class but very meaningful citizenship of the two million Palestinian citizens of uh, Israel to the residents, Israeli residents in, in East Jerusalem to Palestinians in the West Bank in areas A, B, and C, and then the Palestinians in Gaza, and then the Palestinians in the unrecognized villages in Israel. They all have different... It's an amazing sort of number of different um, relationships with the state that is in control of this territory that these 8 million people have. And the 8 million Jewish Israelis just have one, basically just have one with some minor differences. So, So what I'm getting at here is that that's in motion. The, the the way in which Palestinians relate to each other is in motion. Uh, the, the communal violence hooked up with uh, Hamas's rocket attacks, and then there was unrest in Jerusalem, and there was unrest in the West Bank, and it all looked a lot more, um, not, not coordinated or integrated, etc., but a lot more uh, the expression of an increasingly unified movement in terms of sentiments, right, just in terms of sentiments, but that's different. The other thing that's in motion is the Democratic Party in the United States, uh, where you have this faction on the left that is influencing the center and even um staunchly pro-israel members like menendez and schumer and nadler uh, who are signing on to statements that are very supportive of israel but also very critical of israeli policies in ways that you wouldn't have seen before so the the, the political scene in the united states is also definitely in motion um but other those are the two differences right
1: and just very briefly as we move to uh, conclusion where do you see that leading over the next 10 to 25 years
2: well, it's very hard to say. I mean, uh, I I think it's clear that Palestinian citizens of Israel are, are at a crossroads, and it's not going to be an effective um, path forward for them to be simultaneously pursuing a greater confrontation at a communal level and greater political integration at an individual level. It's going to go one way or the other. I mean, even their either their parties are going to uh, drag them into a, uh, uh, a more of an engagement as citizens of Israel, or they're they're going to become more confrontational and and ultimately more a part of a of, of a more um, int- I don't know if integrated is the right word more coherent Palestinian struggle on many fronts simultaneously in different ways reflecting those different legal statuses and different ideologies and different attitudes and different agendas. As this
1: conflict, this version of the conflict seemed to do, yes. seemed to knock down the boundaries amongst
2: Palestinians in the various jurisdictions and and sectors. You did see that. You could also see refugees coming into play as well. I mean, there are even other constituencies among Palestinians. So, you know, uh, I think that's a definite possibility. Um, you want, it'll go one way or the other for the Palestinian citizens of Israel over the next 20 years. I mean, I, I really think they have to break in one. I mean, there may be different factions. There will be, but but generally speaking, it'll go one way or the other. For the United States, I think the polarization is likely to continue because you also have this uh, f- this new force on the far right uh, among and the evangelical Christians and a small group of very committed Uh, Right wing uh, Jewish groups, mostly religious, like the people around Jared Kushner, uh, you know, people like David Friedman and uh, Jason Greenblatt and others who, uh, you know, or or Sheldon Adelson and his friends. Uh, But really the driver on the right is the evangelical Christian um, apocalyptic second coming folks. Who are not even pro-Israel at all? They're pro uh, Armageddon <laughs> and pro, you know, the divine genocide of the Second Coming or whatever the heck they think is going to happen. Uh, they're pro that, and so they've pushed the U.S. into a pro annexation. under Trump, it became U.S. position became pro annexation, pro greater Israel, overtly anti-Palestinian and anti a Palestinian state of any, well, pro-state minus, you know, basically whatever they were calling for in the Kushner Peace to Prosperity Plan uh, was not recognizable as a state in any Westphalian sense, uh, kind of meaningless entity. So um, I think the polarization in the U.S. is likely to continue as well. Where that leads us, I don't know, because we're we're really... Going off into the unknown here and the biggest challenge for everyone who is a serious, purposive person is to have a real conversation about how on earth we can get um, what the Biden administration is calling equal measures of uh freedom and dignity and self-determination and whatnot that's that's a very significant phrase they're using right they keep using it jen saki used it the white house press uh, secretary secretary state blinken has used it at least three times uh president biden has used it this is a very carefully crafted phrase equal measures that they've worked on obviously and um It implies that the U.S. government very subtly is thinking beyond the old two-state solution formula as well. So I'm not sure where we're going. It suggests a very significant shift
1: from Mm -hmm. the model of self-determination to the model of equality for all. Um, I think on that note, we are going to have to wrap up. We look forward to having you back soon on Then and Now to talk about um, uh, how that new discourse and political concept uh, is proceeding. But um, this has been a really illuminating time with you, Dr. Hussein Imish. Thank you so much for being with us.
2: Thank you, Professor Moyes.
1: I'm pleased to welcome to the second section of a special three-part episode of Then and Now, Professor James Galvin, who is a faculty member in the History Department at UCLA. Jim Galvin is a well-known expert on the history of the Middle East, and author and editor of many books, including most recently, The Contemporary Middle East in an Age of Upheaval, The New Middle East, What Everybody Needs to Know, and the fourth edition of the Israel-Palestine Conflict, 100 Years of War, published an intriguing article in The Conversation that argued that Israel is having its own Black Lives Matter moment, about which we'll be speaking among other topics. Welcome to Then and Now, Jim. Thank you very much, David. So your recent article that I just mentioned offers an interesting reframing by arguing that the main event in the recently concluded hostilities was not the conflict between Israel and Hamas, but rather the violence between Arabs and Jews in Israeli cities. Why is that so? Why did you undertake that important reframing?
3: Well, I don't want to discount, first of all, what happened between Hamas and Israel. Um, There were about 250 Palestinian casualties, about a score of Israeli casualties. The damage, people have probably seen the pictures of the damage to Gaza. But the thing is, is that this is the fourth or fifth conflict between Israel and Hamas, Israel and the leadership in Gaza. Uh, I say fourth or fifth, it depends on what you mean by conflict. Um, And uh, the Israelis have not grown inured to it, of course, but have developed a strategy of dealing with it. And that strategy is what they call mowing the grass, which is rockets fly from Hamas, from the Gaza Strip, to Israel, into Israel. And then the Israeli objective is to degrade the capability of Hamas to do that again. Uh, They target rocket launchers. They target Uh, personnel, they target infrastructure in order to just degrade the capability. And they might have a number, 85% or 90% or 95%. And then uh, once they reach that number, they stop, which is why, by the way, the calls for Joe Biden to negotiate a ceasefire were were sort of bogus. Um, They'll they'll continue until they reach that number. And then they'll wait, more rockets will fly a couple of years later, and uh, they'll do the same thing again. Now, what is really going on Uh, I mean, I wanna focus on is the conflict between Jewish Israelis and Palestinian Israelis. And I think what's really important about that is, first of all, that is something that is unprecedented in Israeli history, this intercommunal fighting that's taking place. And it's ripping apart Israeli society. Uh, There have been Jewish mobs, it started out with Jewish mobs attacking Palestinians. Then of course you get a tit for tat with Palestinians attacking Jews. Uh, not only uh, Jew, uh, individual Jews or individual Palestinians, but businesses, property, et cetera, et cetera, within Israel itself. And as I said, this has never really occurred before. And this is calls for a real reckoning about what Israel and Palestine are all about, or Israel and its Palestinian citizens are all about. And this is why I said, this needs a Black Lives Matter moment. Uh, The idea that the only way that Israel is going to get out of this situation is through first reflecting on what the the ultimate problem is, which is baked into the Israeli uh, DNA, actually the the DNA of the Israeli state, and to do something about it. Uh, And that's what Black Lives Matter in the United States called us to do. Unfortunately, it's probably not what is going to go on in Israel um, uh, because of uh, the what happened in 2000 hardened Israeli uh, attitudes. That was of course the second intifada during which the Palestinians uh, undertook suicide bombings uh, that were horrific. Uh, so that really hardened, as I said, uh, Israeli attitudes towards the Palestinians.
1: Right, so you make the point that this kind of intercommunal violence has not occurred in, in, in the history of the state of Israel. Of course it did in 1948, and it did in 1929 and 1921, 20. And I'm wondering how apt you think those references and analogies are. A number of people have said, we haven't seen this since uh, the violence that broke out after the disturbances at the Western Wall and in the summer of 1929. Do you think those are apt analogies or this is something altogether new? I think those are apt. I think all these analogies, I mean, it's like what they always say about
3: history, right? Uh, that, you know, you could make analogies to the past, but they're imperfect analogies. Um, there are other analogies that you could have as well. For example, this whole incident, set, series of incidents began with uh, a dispute in Al-Aqsa, uh, which of course, uh, what happened was the uh, Israeli authorities uh, stormed Al-Aqsa twice, actually, and uh, led to 330 Palestinian injuries. Well, the last uh, Intifada, the second Intifada, also began with an incident at, at Al-Aqsa. So um, uh, there is an analogy there. So I think what we have, to, what we can do, is to go back even further. When I say it's baked into the DNA of Israeli governance and Israeli structures and Israeli uh, uh, other aspects of Israeli life. I think what I really mean to say is that if we go back to, let's say the second and third wave of immigration, uh, Jewish immigration, the uh, second, what they call the second and third Aliyot that took place uh, uh, before the uh, first world war and after the first world war, that was when this idea of a segregated Jewish society uh, began to be entrenched within uh, Palestine. And the institutions that were created were midwifed into the Israeli state And the segregation between Jewish community and the Palestinian community became uh, part of the legal system, the legal apparatus of Israel. So I think, you know, you can make these analogies that 1948 created a situation in which this happened. Um, uh, 2000 was a very similar sort of situation. But I think what we have to do is look at how
1: that DNA got fixed in the first place uh, in terms of Israeli society. Yeah. And your reference to the second Aliyah in particular, uh, which... Uh, introduced the idea of Hebrew labor, Abu Daivrit, as distinct from the employment of Palestinian Arabs to assist in agricultural settlements uh, owned by Jews, brings us to one of the two factors that you identified as really central to this uh, unprecedented intercommunal violence in the state of Israel. So you you pointed to the fact that there have been Um, a series of attempts, and indeed, a very recent attempt by Jewish activists to evict uh, Palestinian families from the East Jerusalem neighborhood of Sheikh Jarrah. Um, And you also called attention to the growing prominence of far-right Jewish politicians, um, who in fact called to mind and draw direct inspiration from uh, the American-Israeli extremist Meir Kahana, who was elected to Knesset in 1984, and who would interpret that older principle of Jewish labor as, uh, or Hebrew labor as a kind of call uh, for the enshrinement of Jewish supremacy in the Israeli state. So you have evictions and this doctrine of Jewish supremacy. Can you elaborate on them and and sort of talk about how they came together to produce that Kinderbox? Uh, yes. And
3: then, and then let me just introduce Kahane with the idea that Uh, He was elected to the Knesset in the 1980s, but was not allowed to take a seat because of extreme racism that he promoted. Uh, And then, of course, the Americans uh, put the Kahana's party uh, on the uh, terrorist watch list. So this will tell you something about what Palestinians now and Israeli politics is up against. Let's start, start with Sheikh Jarrah, which is a neighborhood in Jerusalem, uh, since 1972, there have been attempts to evict Palestinians from this neighborhood. Uh, they uh, reached a high point uh, recently. Uh, the case, one case went before the Israeli Supreme Court, it was supposed to be decided, uh, but uh, they they stalled on the decision uh, simply because it was too provocative. There have been daily demonstrations in this neighborhood uh, against the evictions, and the uh, most immediate, uh, in the most immediate past, the uh, conflict between Palestinians and Jewish Israelis uh, actually began with a conflict between Palestinians, on the one hand, from Sheikh Dra, and on the other hand, uh, between uh, a group, a mob of Jewish Israelis, uh, uh, at which, as you said, the the Kahanist member of Knesset was present and probably being very provocative at the same time. So there's this thing, and you can imagine what this is like in the the Palestinian psyche, this idea that Palestinians, number one, don't belong, and number two, this reminder of the original tragedy of modern Palestinian life, which is the Nakba of 1948, when 720,000 Palestinians had to leave the territory that would become Israel uh, and go elsewhere, became a Palestinian diaspora. This enabled the Jewish Israelis to form a large majority of the citizens of of Israel. So this is one thing that, you know, it was extraordinarily provocative, and Palestinians uh, throughout the world actually felt this. The second uh, aspect of it is the um, hard right turn that has been taking place in Israeli politics. I mean, many people will remember Benjamin Netanyahu saying, for example, uh, during one of the previous elections, uh, that the Arabs are coming out in in droves. Uh, The idea being that Arab citizens of Israel should not be entitled to the same representative rights as the Jewish Israeli citizens. Um, What began to happen uh, most recently is uh, uh, a rise of the Kahanist movement uh, once again. Uh, the uh, election of a Kahanist member of Knesset, and the emboldening of Kahanists who um, have taken to the streets, doing things like chanting death to Arabs in uh, Arab neighborhoods. Uh, they're joined by uh, ultra-nationalists on the one hand, and they're also joined by settlers uh, who have been bussed into uh, uh, Jerusalem and other areas uh, to do this and to perform provocative acts, which, which they have been doing. So this is something that is uh, brand new, this idea of a direct uh, confrontation between um, uh, Jewish Israelis and Palestinian Israelis um, that led to tit-for-tat mob attacks.
1: So I want to layer on top of those two factors, two additional factors, and get your uh, take on them. One um, is the desperate political condition of one Benjamin Netanyahu, um, who um, is... Uh, on trial for uh, three charges of bribery and fraud, um, unable to form a government after four elections, um, and um, some would say uh, uh, had a vested interest in sort of setting in motion the events that had the effect of forestalling an alternative government, that is a government other than a Likud-led Netanyahu uh, government uh, taking rise. So that's factor number one, Netanyahu's political fortunes. Factor number two is the increasing call um, especially from the center to the left of the spectrum, to include Arab political parties in governing coalitions. And in fact, in, in the run-up to uh, the hostilities between Hamas and Israel, uh, it was said that there was um, a very likely a, a prospect of a, an alternative government, a non netanyahu government taking being formed that would include, an Arab party, the United Arab List, led by the Islamist Mansour Abbas, um, which would mark the first time that an Arab party um, was part of a governing coalition in the Knesset in the Israeli parliament. I'm wondering how you see these two factors playing out, in a sense, moving in all opposite directions. The prospect of an Arab party actually joining the Knesset and Netanyahu's uh, political machinations seeking to torpedo um, an alternative government including perhaps by setting in motion this series of events that eventuated in uh, the Hamas-Israel hostilities. Um, is, do you think Netanyahu was capable of that to begin? Oh, absolutely. I mean, he's on, up on charges, three uh, charges of the corruption,
3: um, certainly. And, and in the United States, we see a similar phenomenon that has taken place as well. So, and you know, uh, we should not call anybody out for belief in conspiracy theories since obviously that's very, very strong right now in the United States as well. But uh, the two things that you mentioned, first of all, um, the uh, uh, what has gone on uh, and whether or not there is some relationship to the elections uh, and the results of those elections uh, in, in what's going on. Um, as I said before, the second intifada began with an a, a incident uh, in Al-Aqsa Mosque. There was an incident again, as I said, uh, with uh, again, uh, police security forces clearing Al-Aqsa um, and getting into a, uh, a, a protracted uh, fight with uh, Palestinian worshipers there. Um, they used rubber bullets, they used a great deal of force, And the question is, didn't they learn their lesson from 2000? And maybe the answer is they did learn their lesson from 2000 and they sought to exploit their lesson from 2000. Um, And the same thing with uh, the bringing in of the settlers to create all this trouble. Uh, Obviously, the settlers do not want to see an Arab party as part of the government. Uh, They want to have as hard-line a government as possible. They look at Netanyahu as being somebody who's delivered for them in the past and will deliver for them in the future. So I don't think we're going out too far on a limb to say there's some relationship between the Israeli elections and what has transpired. Uh, Now, the other thing, of course, is to bring the idea of an Arab party being either part of a government or supporting the government from the outside, which would allow for... Uh, a government to be formed, opposed to Netanyahu. And the the question, of course, is uh, whether or not there was some idea that what we could do is bust up this coalition of an Arab party and uh, the other uh, mainstream uh, parties, uh, Jewish-Israeli parties. We can bust that up by provoking something like this so that no self-respecting Arab politician could join a coalition like that or support a coalition like that, and no um, uh, self-respecting Jewish politician could also join a uh, uh, thing like that as well. One thing that's very interesting though is that the polls from the last couple of days that have been taken in Israel, Netanyahu is down at least one seat uh, in, in, in the Knesset. So the plan
1: probably hasn't gone as planned. Yeah, until the eve of an election when he'll promise another annexation and and bring his traditional people back. Um, I want to shift gears and ask about um, what seems to be, at least on the surface, a very novel phenomenon as well, which is the breaking of of the boundaries that separate different Palestinian constituencies in the land between the river and the sea. So we have Palestinians in Gaza, we have Palestinians in the West Bank, and we have Palestinians in within the Green Line, in the state of Israel. And it seems as if this uh, convulsion of violence in a certain sense, um, achieved a greater degree of unity um, in the interests of Palestinians across these uh, various uh, boundaries and within these different jurisdictions occupying different legal statuses. Um, is that do you see it that way? I do, um, but the import of that
3: I uh, don't see as anything coming of it. And the re- the reason I see it is is because I think there's a great deal of symbolic value. Um, and the symbolic value is that the Palestinian nation is not divided on these issues, uh, it's not divided on the occupation, it's not divided on what's going on within Israel itself, it's not divided on the question of Jerusalem and uh, the attempts to uh, expel. Uh, Palestinian families from uh, Jerusalem. So uh, there is a strange unity of the Palestinian nation at the exact same time as there is a division in the Palestinian uh, government, uh, between the PA, the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank and Hamas in the uh, Gaza Strip. So that I think is, is, is interesting. But as far as having any more import, Palestinians are not gonna get their state. And Palestinians are not going to have the Israelis withdraw from Jerusalem. Uh, So it's mainly a symbolic thing to show that the Palestinians are united as a a people, uh, in spite of the fact that their government is divided.
1: Yeah, though it may well be um, that 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 unity um, continues to place additional pressure on Israel and elsewhere around the world. It seems to me that we're seeing some shift in certainly the sensibility of American politicians regarding Israel-Palestine um, gradual um, that, you know, may be connected to or certainly, you know, is, is not unrelated to um, the growing sense of unity and justice of the Palestinian cause. So maybe shifting gears, how do you see um Israel-Palestine playing out in the United States today, in the political arena of the United States. Um, uh, do you sense that shift that many, some are, uh, are have been waiting for for decades and others fear uh, marks an abandonment of traditional American support for Israel? How do you see the shift? I think
3: there's several things that are going on. There's several things. Uh, first of all, uh, Jewish youth is not as enthusiastic about Israel as their elders have been. Uh, And uh, the uh, Israeli um, uh, uh, David became the Israeli Goliath uh, while they came of age. And they also see the, you know, uh, more support for uh, human rights among this cohort. And they also see what's going on in Israel-Palestine. There's other things, though, in terms of the, the politicians. I mean, you have the progressives on the one hand who are, of course, in support of the Palestinian cause. Um, But you also have people who are more centrist, like Chuck Schumer and people like that. And um, Netanyahu really shot himself in the foot by making Israel into a political football, by coming out and speaking to a joint session of Congress, uh, denouncing the uh, signature policy of the Obama administration in the Middle East, the Iran nuclear deal, um, by coming out so strong in support of uh, Donald Trump, uh, by, I mean, there was even a, a settlement in the Golan Heights named after Trump Heights. Uh, so uh, there was that. So a lot of it has to do with bad calls uh, that were done for, let's say, politically pragmatic reasons by the Netanyahu administration. And um, American politicians are reacting to that as well. I mean, the, uh, the idea that these two would conspire together and come up with this uh, Trump peace plan um, it was anathema to most of them because, frankly, we always had uh, sought in the past, or we had programmed program in the past, that uh, the results of the 1948 war and the results of the 1967 war were not going to be litigated by the Americans. They
1: were going to be litigated by Israelis and Palestinians sitting down together and figuring it out. Right. And in a certain sense, you alluded in your previous answer that some things have been figured out. You said the Palestinians... Maybe be unified, but they're not going to get a state, um, which suggests that we are not, at least soon, going to see two states, two uh, contiguous um, uh, uh, sovereign states, an Israeli and a Palestinian state. Um, and so the question is, um, are you prepared to declare the definitive end of the two-state era?
3: Yeah, I think I am. Um, there hasn't been negotiations since 2014. Uh, Anthony Blinken just got on a plane, and is I don't know if he's arrived yet in the Middle East, um, but uh, he downplayed any efforts that would be made towards uh, trying to get negotiations started again. Why is he going over there? Well, he wants to show Israel that you know, they continue to have American support and wants to begin humanitarian relief for the uh, Palestinians. The idea of a negotiated settlement, he said on CNN a couple of days ago, was this is something that is too early to call, too early to try to implement at the present time. So I think the Biden administration is looking at what happened between Obama and Netanyahu, and thinking to themselves, we can't get sucked into the same hole, the same infinite loop that the Obama administration got sucked into. Uh, What we have to do is to allow the situation to cool off And in the meantime deal with things that are really important here like for example the pandemic like for example the infrastructure bill like uh getting the economy going again and these are the things that i want to focus on and this thing would just suck out all the oxygen in the room so what they want to do is to avoid doing anything actually um uh, one way or the other uh, that would get the united states involved in that uh
1: sinkhole so let's then, by way of conclusion, look into the crystal ball and say, what is the horizon for Palestinians? Is there any horizon of hope um, in the intermediate or long term? And what, for that matter, is the future of Israel as a Jewish state? Small questions, but um, you're, you're the kind of guy who can take them on.
3: <laughs> well, first uh, let's start over. The uh, uh, Israel as a Jewish state. That became a demand, a Jewish, uh, an Israeli demand, as. Well, in 2007 at the Annapolis talks, it never was on the board before. And then in 2018, it became actually the reality uh, in the uh, nationality bill, the idea that Israel is a Jewish state. Now, what did that do for Palestinians? What did that make Palestinians and Druze and other minorities within Israel? That made them second-class citizens somehow. And what the Israelis have done is to put this now on the front burner Uh, making this a fundamental divide between them and the Palestinians. The Palestinians, uh, the, the PA, the Palestinian Authority, is not going to be able to sign on to this. And the Israelis know that full well. So the idea of Israel as a Jewish state is here to stay. And that, of course, means that equal citizenship for everybody between the Mediterranean and the Jordan River is not going to happen. Uh, it's uh, just something that, po- you know, population experts say, you know, the Jewish population is expanding at a certain rate, the Palestinian population is expanding at a certain rate, and they don't agree uh, across the board on who would be a majority, but nobody's gonna take that chance in Israel of having Palestinians as a, uh, a majority. The other thing is, is that uh, the Israelis and Palestinians can't agree on, on tiny issues. How are they gonna agree on, on constitutional issues that a one-state solution would beg? Would Two-state solution is probably gone. Um, the Israelis will uh, have balked at negotiations. Uh, Netanyahu only kicking and screaming Uh, adopted the idea that there might be a possibility of a two-state solution if, 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 if. Uh, And so uh, that's probably off the board. So I think what we're going to see in the near and medium-term future is going to be uh, the status quo. There's going to be de facto annexation and um, maybe even uh, de jure annexation of the settlements or of the territories in which the settlements are. I think the Palestinians, the United Nations, the European Union are going to squawk, uh, but let them squawk all they want to. I mean, the Security Council of the UN, except for the United States, voted for um, an immediate ceasefire. Um, So uh, the Israelis know that it's very simple to buck the uh, United Nations or the EU or uh, anybody else on on this matter. So let them squawk. Um, If Netanyahu, as you put it, if Netanyahu wants to win another election, well, all he has to do is to do something like annex the, the settlements or the territory of the settlements. So I see that as something that's going to go on uh, in the uh, short and medium term. In the long term, as Keynes said, in the long term, we're all dead. So uh, I'm not quite sure what's going to happen uh, in the long term. Uh, nobody predicted that Anwar Sadat uh, so craved the, uh, the popularity uh, that his predecessor had, not Nasser had in Egypt, that he would fly to Jerusalem. These things happen in, in various uh, strikes. Also the idea that you know within Israel you have an, a new generation that is emerging again like the generation in the United States. So um, uh, the long term is, is is very difficult to uh, to look at. The thing is is that the Israelis have got themselves into a position right now. Um, in terms of the settlements, in terms of dividing up uh, Palestinian territory, whereby reversing that in some way is going to be extraordinarily difficult.
1: Well, mixed in your final comments um, was a, a measure of hope, a ray of hope in uh, the radical contingency of history. We, we, we simply don't know what will be in the long term. But um, it sounds like um, we should not expect dramatic change in the short and intermediate term. Um, and I think um, what this indicates to us is that we'll have to check back with you uh, soon enough to see where we're at. Um, this has really been a rich conversation uh, with you. Jim, thank you, Professor James Galvin, for making time out of your busy schedule to join us on Then and Now. Thank you for having me, David. I'm delighted to have as our guest for this third segment of the three-part episode of Then and Now devoted to Israel-Palestine, Lara Friedman. Lara is president of the Foundation for Middle East Peace. Previously, she served as the Director of Policy and Government Relations at Americans for Peace Now. And before that, she was a U.S. Foreign Service officer serving in Jerusalem, Washington, Tunis, and Beirut. She is one of the most incisive observers of the Middle East and Israel-Palestine in particular. It's a delight to welcome you to then and now, Lara.
4: It's a pleasure, thank you so much for having me.
1: Great, so let's jump right in. What if anything uh, was new in this latest round of violence between Israelis and Palestinians? Um, were there winners and losers? Do you think the strategic balance has been altered at all?
4: Well, I think you know it's, it's a big question and, and there's a lot that isn't new. This is clearly not the first um, round of violence we've seen. Um, between Hamas in Gaza and, and Israel. Um, but there it does feel like there were some things that were different here. And I think you have to pull the lens a little further out to, to see what's different. Um, starting with, you know, this didn't start in Gaza and it didn't start in the West Bank. It started in East Jerusalem. Um, and that's important. You know, there there are those who have long argued, like Danny Sideman, who's the world expert on, on things Jerusalem, that it is not Every small event that will cause a major eruption um, cause Palestinians to really come out in the streets, but it is the events that that really go to the core of the identity part of the conflict, and those are events largely related to Jerusalem, violations of dignity and sacred space and that's what you had um, so you know this is remarkable in that what you saw escalate into a missile shooting war between. Um, the Israeli army and and Hamas started out with what were provocations. I would argue by Israel in Jerusalem. So not this is an ongoing process of provocations, but around Ramadan, with you know closing Damascus Gate and, and a whole series of provocations there, and then moving to the issue of um, displacement of Palestinians in Sheikh Jarrah. You, you, you had an escalation where, you know, the Hamas entry into this um, after you had the visuals of, you know, Israeli forces on the Temple Mount Haram al-Sharif in the sense of real violation of sacred space, it escalated, I think, in a a different way than we've seen in the past, which goes to another thing which I think is is different. I mean, if if Hamas was sort of coming in and playing catch-up to the forces that were already, you know, standing up, rising up on the ground in Jerusalem, um, they can, you know, if they say they're defending I, you know, politically, it's it's as much a game of saying we are relevant and playing catch up. Um, what we saw happening inside the green line spoke to a fundamental. At least a difference between this and previous Israel Gaza engagements, because this is this is Palestinians in every part of the Palestinian um polity on both sides of the Green Line in East Jerusalem, in the West Bank, and in Gaza, and in the diaspora, but, you know, focusing on the areas, you know, between, as as both sides would say, between the river and the sea, standing up in a unified way and saying, we are in a unified way, pushing back, maybe not each with an identical set of grievances, but with grievances that are part and parcel of a, a sense of, um, Israel is seeking to impose permanent sovereignty, permanent domination over this entire area, and it is at the cost of Palestinian rights, Palestinian humanity, Palestinian dignity, all of that. Um, the, the the mere fact that it was so comprehensive across all of these populations, I think, is, is unprecedented.
1: Right. I mean, it really seems uh, to be new, and yet there's a kind of striking structural dissonance. So on one hand, you have this bottom-up solidarity across the various jurisdictions in which Palestinians find themselves between the river and the sea. And at the same time, you have, in a certain sense, the same fractiousness from the top down at the political level. Um, Hamas, uh, Fatah, and the Palestinian Authority, and then, of course, the various Palestinian actors within the Israeli political system. Um, So how um, how do we imagine these two vectors um, intersecting, sort of bottom-up solidarity, unprecedented in some sense, and that same sort of top-down fractiousness uh, at the level of political actors?
4: I mean, it's a great question, I think. I hope you have Palestinians on who can, can answer it um, from a Palestinian perspective of seeing it, you know, really as, as Palestinians. As an analyst, you know, I, I think what we saw in this, in this round of, of activism And it's not something, we've seen things like this before in pieces, if you go back, I think it was to 2017, 2014, we had the the kerfuffle around the Temple Mount haram sharif and the the metal detectors where you had a grassroots movement by Palestinians protesting Israeli actions to in effect change the status quo on the Temple Mount. They were praying in large numbers on the streets around the Temple Mount haram sharif and they actually convinced Israel to change the policy. Um, if you look at things like, again, a number of years ago when Palestinian activists um, in the West Bank established a symbolic outpost in the E1 area as in, to protest Israel taking land. Or if you even go back a little further and the, the mass um, hunger striking we saw a while ago by Palestinian prisoners and administrative detainees. In each of these cases, you actually saw, not just, you know, grassroots solidarity, you saw the grassroots taking the lead. In each of these cases, you saw the Palestinian political parties scrambling to follow, scrambling to make themselves relevant when the grassroots was in a very effective way, organizing and taking the lead. And I think that is something that we're witnessing right now. It's not just a matter of grassroots solidarity. If you look at what happened immediately after the ceasefire where there was a strike, a Palestinian strike in all areas from the river to the sea. I mean, this was grassroots organized. This wasn't Fatah calling a strike or Hamas calling a strike. This was Palestinian grassroots organizers, and it was an enormously effective strike call, um, again, on on both sides of the Green Line. Um, What what it suggests to me, and, and, you know, this is all coming In the context of, and I want to be clear, I don't think it's cause effect, but it's coming in the context of the PA elections being canceled, right? And the PA elections, you know, were, you know, Palestinians, I've heard, you know, really thoughtful analysis from so many Palestinians on, you know, why they were or weren't important. And you can find both people, both arguments being made. But whether you thought that they were really a way to deliver new, credible leadership or they were going to be cover for giving credibility to old leadership, whatever you thought, the fact that they were canceled is a reminder that there is no political process inside Palestinian society that can deliver um, accountable leadership. Um, I think, you know, some of us would argue that as long as we're living under, as long as they're living under occupation, it's not possible to have that because no Palestinian authority is allowed to deliver anything that they can be really accountable for, except acting as a subcontractor for occupation. But in the absence of an ability to deliver or ability to renew legitimacy, the grassroots is increasingly contending for leadership. Um, I, I can't say where that goes, but but it's really important because it's this leadership that they're contending for. They're, they're doing it on, on, in terms of a debate that's entirely different. It's not based in Oslo. It's not based on, you know, coexistence or whatever. It's based on rights and dignity. And whether you support one state, two states or 17 states, it is a different framework and it's far more challenging, I think, to to the international community and to people who think that the status quo was something that they would like to return to.
1: Well, in light of that disruption of the status quo, I wonder if we can reflect on some of the key actors and the, the realms in which they operate, um, uh, who are really central to the story. So let's begin with Palestinian citizens of Israel. Um, as you noted, one of the uh, uh, unprecedented uh, developments of this conflict was uh, the outbreak of very, very um, uh, uh, destructive violence between Uh, Jews and Arabs uh, in Arab in in Israeli cities and in what are known as mixed cities. Where do you think this uh, this uh, wave of hostilities have left has left uh, Palestinian citizens of Israel?
4: I'm not positive how to answer that. Um, I I think it's clear that one thing it has left is it's left things. The situation obviously is far tenser than it has been in a very long time, that the possibility for violence is greater. And we're seeing this week Israel instigating a massive crackdown, mass arrests against Palestinians and citizens of Israel. We're not seeing parallel arrests of Jewish citizens who were involved in, in violence during this period. And I think that's a powerful message. You know, for Palestinian citizens of Israel, I mean, for years, for all of us who are on the ground talking to people and, and listening—more important than talking—this shouldn't come as, as a huge surprise. The fact that Palestinian citizens of Israel would would stand up and 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 protest, right? I mean, just the nation-state law. The idea that that Jewish citizens of Israel are surprised that their Palestinian Palestinian citizen brethren are unhappy with the status quo when the status quo has systematically and as a as a matter of law, um, it, 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 this, I'm trying to think of the right framing here. I mean, it is structurally designed to serve Jewish Israelis at the expense of Palestinian Israelis. And even if people are not interested in looking at the, the, the unequal, you know, budget allotments or the unequal land allotments, or, I mean, all of these, these basic, these basic facts that are not debatable, maybe people want to try to rationalize or ignore. The fact that Israel passed the nation state law, which is a public statement to non Jewish citizens of Israel that you don't really count and that it is a state for the Jews and more or less you can be here, but you will, this is our state. I mean, This is not something that Jews would be comfortable with in any country in the world if a country treated them that way. The idea that they think the situation is stable and fine when they're treating Palestinian citizens that way and are surprised when it turns out not to be, I think really does tell you a lot about the the head in the sand part um, of of the story here. The, The question of sort of where this leaves things, I mean, When the Palestinian, my Palestinian friends that I've spoken to who are citizens of Israel since this started, you know, they, there is a sense now of we are standing up as maybe our parents should have, as we always should have. The the lie of coexistence is now clear to everybody. Coexistence for Israelis meant Palestinian citizens agreeing to live in this lesser status. It it, is... I was talking to someone um, today in, in one of the so called mixed cities, and that term itself is quite um, telling because what it basically tells you is most of Israel is segregated, and then we have a few mixed cities, and that shows that there's coexistence. But you know, when we're talking about these mass arrests, you know, you say, well, is this going to are the, will mass arrests succeed in tamping down the activism of Palestinian citizens of Israel? And the answer is no. Of course, it won't. It'll have the opposite effect. Um, so we'll see.
1: Right. And set against that, I suppose, is the prospect of um, of an Arab political party entering a governing coalition uh, in the form of the United Arab List, um, which on the face of it is an unlikely candidate for inclusion, given that it is the Islamist um, uh, political party uh, representing uh, Palestinian citizens of Israel. What, what does that prospect look like to you? To, and, and how do you How does that comport with uh, what you've just been talking about, which is this sort of new sense of the importance of resisting and acknowledging um, an unjust regime?
4: So I will say I learned long ago that that anyone who tries to game out Israeli coalition politics is bound to look like a fool. Um, It is difficult to imagine. It was difficult to imagine before all of this happened in the past few weeks that you would have the Islamist party joining a center-right government, which is what you would be talking about, or even a a center and with people like Bennett, relatively far-right government, simply because there are too many racists in that government to be willing to sit with an Arab party. Um, I will say what's most interesting for me when I look at the dynamics of Palestinian citizens of Israel and their engagement in Israeli politics is if you, you know, we're looking right now at a coalition effort to build a coalition for the four as the results of the fourth election in two years. If you go back one election, go back two elections, you actually had strong showings by Arab parties. They just weren't radical Islamist parties. They were parties where the leaders like Ayman Ode, sound a lot like Shalamak Shah, Peace Now. And you had the, the other parties on the center and the right basically saying we would never possibly, no way sit in coalition with them. But somehow they're willing to sit in coalition with another party because it's a party that is pretty much not interested in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and basically behaves like a Palestinian version of Shas. That is really telling. And what it tells me is that this is not in any way indicative of a greater readiness to see Palestinian participation and ownership of the Israeli political process. It is pure cynical coalition making, and I think it probably won't succeed because I think it will be undone by the racism of so many of the Israeli parties.
1: And that uh, leads us to talk about the main player in the Israeli Jewish uh, political world, Benjamin Netanyahu. Um, where, where does he stand um, at this point um, in the wake of the hostilities?
4: It's a Where he stands right now is that he's still standing, which is something. I mean, if, if right now his main goal is survival, um, you know, his survival looks better today than it did two weeks ago. Is it guaranteed? No. Is it possible they will be able the lapide in some some grouping will manage to form a government? It's absolutely possible. Um, is it possible that will be they will not be able to and we will see another round of Israeli elections? I think that's just as possible. Um, you know, people should have learned long ago that counting counting Bibi Netanyahu out um, prematurely is, is always a mistake. I think it is premature here. Um, but, you know, the, what I think is most important for, for folks to understand who are in the anything but Bibi camp, right, any change will be better, is that, you know, be very careful what you wish for. Um, it's sort of like, you know, well, anything but Trump will be better and you're going to end up with a Ted Cruz or a Nikki Haley as the next Republican president. Be very careful what you, you, you wish for. Um, Naftali Bennett is not a small-D Democrat. And the fact that he is not Bibi Netanyahu doesn't mean he is not going to be many magnitudes worse and potentially, I think, far more effective at doing bad things than Bibi was um, so I mean, there isn't. If, if the idea is, well, we there, there's a real prospect that, that Bibi may not survive this, um, we should celebrate because that means Natalie Bennett's going to be the next prime minister. I think people should take a very deep breath, breath and think about what that means.
1: Right, and of course there is a prospect that Netanyahu will survive this, um, in which case he will emerge from this as, in some sense, a winner. Um, and there is a whole um, series of speculation um, and and punditry about uh, the alliance, uh, of course, the unwritten alliance between Netanyahu and Hamas that both had um, some measure of interest in uh, exacerbating tensions uh, toward uh, conflict. Netanyahu in creating an emergency situation uh, that could torpedo an alternative government coming into play um, thereby perpetuating its own rule, and Hamas in burnishing its reputation as the guardians of uh, the Palestinian national cause and Jerusalem, um, and thereby um, uh, 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 burnishing its credentials as against Fatah in the West Bank. Um, what is that? Do, do you, what do you think of that? And, and what does that look like in terms of Hamas and where it stands today?
4: Look, I, I think there there's an argument can be made. I mean, if you, I thought somebody had done an analysis of the most recent, you know, five wars or something between Israel uh, or Israel military action, the Gaza Strip. And the the, the no, most of them coincide with lame duck governments. Does that mean that lame duck governments exploit this to try to be more powerful? Does it mean that Hamas exploits lame duck government periods? I mean, I, I don't think, you know. Correlation is causation, but there's certainly you can see a a confluence of interest here. By the same token, the visuals that were coming out of (laughs) the Al-Aqsa Mosque and on the Haram al-Sharif and Temple Mount, the visuals of Israel firing stun grenades into the holy spaces, the visuals of of spaces being being desecrated, it's difficult to imagine. Even you know, the PA is in no position to do anything. They are not present in Jerusalem. They have no ability to act diplomatically because Israel doesn't care what they say. They have no power there at all. I mean, it's not surprising that Hamas decided that this was maybe not just an opportunity, but if they were gonna be relevant in any way at all, that this was the time to do something. Um, you know, the, the, the level of, um, of the layers of interests here are, I think are not so simple that there's a, a straight line answer. Um, to, to why this happened now. I will say, you know, for Bibi, not losing is winning. That's <laughs> as simple as it is. You know, it's hard to call this a winner. I mean, this is a terrible situation. The internally inside the green line, Israel is, is, is in a rougher place than it's been in a very long time, or at least that roughness is now for, out there for everyone to see. Um, and if you look at what's happening in the US and international community and in Congress, Israel is in a tougher position than it's been maybe at any time in my lifetime, but he wins by not losing. And I think to some extent Hamas wins by not losing as well. Um, So there, there is certainly a a confluence of interests.
1: Right. So you mentioned um, some shifts that are underway in the United States um, and the political world um, uh, in which Israel-Palestine is debated. Um, What are those shifts that you see? And how substantial are they uh, right now? And do you see them becoming um, uh, catalysts to significant change in the, the, the short to intermediate term? are so big questions.
4: The the Look, at the most basic level, I watch Congress very closely. Um, you saw a, a bump in the number of people willing to speak out on what was happening even before Hamas started shooting rockets. You saw that. You saw it happening with what was happening, at the, the 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 crisis around Sheikh Shara and then the Temple Mount, Haram sharif You saw a number of members and not just the most progressive Um, making statements of of concern or opposition, signing letters against displacement from Sheikh Jarrah, all of that. Um, Once you saw the the beginning of the Israeli um, military campaign in Gaza, and, and this is, you know, there is clear denunciation, condemnation of Hamas for shooting rockets into Israel, which is clearly a war crime. Shooting rockets into civilian areas is terrorism. It is a war crime without question. But it is possible to say that and also say that Israel destroying towers where hundreds of people live, even if they are warning people in advance, you have five minutes to leave behind everything you own, all your worldly goods, grab your kids and run. And by the way, there really isn't a place to run because you're in Gaza. I mean, it, it it was surprising to me how many members spoke out or were willing to speak out with some greater or lesser degree of criticism of Israel, including people like Bob Menendez, who are not known for being critical um, of Israeli policy. Uh, I wonder, observing this, if part of the reason why you had over time so many speaking out, including people like Senator Menendez, is partly because you had the relative absence of a US administration leading efforts to end the violence, which I think is perhaps unprecedented. presidents of either party, when faced with the kind of thing we saw in Gaza over the past few weeks, you had people from very early on talking about ramping down violence, looking for a ceasefire, sort of leading, leading efforts to end, end the bloodshed. And what you saw instead from the Biden administration was initially, you know, almost total absence from the scene. And then to the extent that they were present, it was to prevent other people from leading efforts to end the bloodshed. Um, which I think actually interestingly created space where members of Congress were willing to be more outspoken. So that's the, the, and that's a really interesting dynamic, you know, whether this change and this is certainly what you see from Congress reflects, I think what is true in the grassroots of Americans, particularly Democrats who want to see a more, you know, pro peace, pro Palestinian rights, pro rights, pro human rights, you know, sort of agenda, um, I don't know whether this changes policy. I, I saw a headline in, in the Hill, the, the newspaper of Capitol Hill the other day, which said, you know, mo- 51% of, of, of Americans oppose Sanders' resolution to block arms sales to Israel. And I'm thinking that's a fascinating headline because what the actual text says is that 53% of Democrats approve and 49% of Republicans approve and 49% of independents approve, which seems to me an extraordinarily high number. Majority of Dems and nearly the nearly a, a half of of, of Republicans, um, you know that's where people are. I think it's far too soon to say that there's a a, a real shift and a shift that could lead to a shift in policy. Um, and and here's why I start to wax somewhat pessimistic. I, I listening to the Biden administration and looking at what they are doing now and how they acted in this crisis. My my feeling is that they are viewing this as a I think, A, our president has a strong affinity for Mr. Netanyahu and his rule and doesn't really want to challenge it. And B, they are seeing this through a very clear political lens of midterm elections and 2024 elections and see this as an issue where they do not want to spend political capital and they do not want to be vulnerable. And and the next period I expect is going to be an exercise in largely symbolic gestures meant to placate progressives while demonstrating to the other the other side, the non-progressive side, that they actually do stand shoulder to shoulder, no daylight with Israel. And to the extent there's any difference at all, it's only on Iran. And I don't find a lot of optimism there. Yeah.
1: Okay, well, let's perhaps as a final question, take a step back and ask where we are historically. You've suggested that the Oslo paradigm is not really operative or relevant anymore, suggesting that the two-state era is over. So as president of the Foundation for Middle East Peace, what are the elements that you think need to be in place uh, for a fair and just resolution to the Israel-Palestine problem? So I
4: first want to be clear, I think the Oslo paradigm is still the dominant paradigm for the international community. at the the, for the eu i think it is u.s policy i don't see that changing and for even the except for maybe the furthest progressive members of congress i don't see anyone walking away from it i think that is still the safe place where people can wrap themselves in the cloak of diplomacy and consensus feelings and and if they're going to be critical of israel it's always going to still be backed it's it's going to be contextualized with two states Um, and and i don't i don't see that changing soon um, if it's going to change, I mean, and I think it should change. You know, I am someone who still, you know, I, I love to see a two-state solution. I, I think that the two-state solution as an opportunity for Israel was a, a gift that it should have grabbed with both hands and run. It was an opportunity to, to have a future based on 67. And I, a lot of us said for years, if you don't grab this opportunity, you're going to be forced to relitigate 1948. And that, that is a much more complicated outcome. And I think that's where we are today. I think for both the Israeli right and for Palestinians, this is about relitigating and trying to finish 48 in a different way. And for those of us who are looking at this as analysts, I mean, I, w- I would point to the, the report that came out of Carnegie um, and, the, and the, the, the you know from um, um, Daniel Levy and Zaha Hassan and, and that group a few, a few weeks ago. I mean, at this point, I think if you are doing anything but talking about rights, I think you are missing the boat. I, I just, I think you are. For years, the, the whole Oslo framing was predicated, in effect, on the argument, yes, we care about rights, we care about human rights, we care about rule of law, but if we get bogged down litigating that now, we'll never get to a solution. The important thing is to get to a solution, and that solution will, wrap, will neatly tie a bow, and all of those things will be resolved. All right, we're 25 years in. Not only has that not happened, but during that time, as we took our eye off the ball of basic human rights, basic respect for for rule of law, okay, the situation has gotten so many magnitudes worse, and the politics inside Israel, not surprisingly, as Israel has been allowed to to do this with impunity, have grown in a direction of illiberalism that not only tolerates and supports this, but defends it and, and identifies itself by by. It, the entire—it's got an entire political identity, identity built around justifying the deprivation of rights and dignity of another people. I think that's where right now policy has to start, and we can agree to disagree on whether it ends in a secular binational state or a holy Jewish state or a Palestinian state or seven again one three seventeen states. I, I think we have to agree to disagree on that if, if if we do disagree, and focus on things like is it okay that Palestinians in Sheikh Shara, who themselves are refugees from inside the green line, who were settled in this land in the 50s, that yes, it was owned by Jews before 48. And now you're going to displace them again based on some principle. You say we have the just principle of returning Jewish property. while they have no just principle of recovering their property inside the green line. I mean, the, the whole question of terms like apartheid, whether it's appropriate, someone I know has jo- joked on Twitter that, you know, we had this report from Human Rights Watch saying that that Israel is is acting, it, it, it apartheid describes Israel's policy, and everybody screamed, no, no, it's not true. And then we've seen weeks now of Israel almost seeking to demonstrate through policy after policy that, yes, it is true. Um, those policies right now are the problem. And if the end of, so if the idea was that the, if our end is trying to reach peace and that justifies the means, which is ignoring human rights and violations thereof, I think that has been proven to be a spectacular miscalculation.
1: Well, this has been a most intriguing conversation. Many thanks to you, Lara Friedman, for making time out of your busy schedule to be on Then and Now. It's really been a pleasure.
4: My pleasure. Thanks for having me.
1: And thank you to all of our guests on today's special three-part episode. Hussein Ibish, Jim Galvin, and Laura Friedman. See you next time on Then and Now.
0: Thank you for joining us this week on Then and Now. Then and Now is brought to you by the UCLA Luskin Center for History and Policy, where we study change to make change. For more on our work, follow us on Twitter and Facebook at our handle, at Luskin History. Our show is produced by Maya Ferdman and David Myers, with original music by Daniel Reichman. Special thanks to the UCLA History Department for its support, and thanks to you for listening.